Welcome back to the third podcast in our series, Did Jesus Really Say That? We begin with one of the shoulds and oughts laid on us by well-meaning but ill-informed Christians. That is, we always have to forgive. This arises from Jesus' teaching in the 18th chapter of Matthew. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Almost everyone I know addresses this passage by concluding that any hurt, wound, or trauma must be forgiven no matter how many times it occurs. For example, over the centuries, most clerical men in power have insisted on the need to forgive all manners of abuse foisted on women. Or lately, supposedly well-meaning therapists have urged us to forgive in order to bring us inner peace or to make us feel better. Both groups miss the point. Fritz Kunkel, a contemporary of Sigmund Freud and the father of we psychology, is the only person I know who catches the irony in Jesus' response. He writes, Jesus looks at Peter with a strange fire in his eyes. The fathomless ambiguity of this moment still trembles in Matthew's words 70 times 7. Repeating the same performance ad infinitum? Has this ever helped any transgressor? Try it, Simon. Forgive the same insult 70 times 7. The dullness of your humiliation will paralyze you or ignite your own engine so that you explode in creative fury. Then you will learn the difference between the cringing appeaser and the creative peacemaker. Forgiveness must be creative, and if it is, there is no need for repetition. If it is not, it is not forgiveness at all, it is indulgence. Ah, so this is what we have been taught, not forgiveness, but indulgence. Kunkel's insight also dismantles any notion of sitting in your living room and forgiving someone who is living 50 miles away. The act of forgiveness is meant to be a face-to-face encounter between the one who has injured and the one injured, an encounter that changes both parties. It is not about making one of us feel better. And I must insist that part of this process is having the one who has caused pain or harm admit to and hear what damage has been done to the other, a particularly humbling experience. Forgiveness seldom accomplishes its mission because few have ever actually attempted it. 
For example, to suggest that a woman sexually abused by family members should sit in her living room and forgive her abuser is simply urging her to repeat her trauma. And even though my experience is limited, I do not know any sexual abuser when confronted by the abused who then acknowledges what took place. Further, when it comes to forgiveness, Jesus gives us a choice. In John 20, we read, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. To be free in the Spirit is to have at least two choices in any given situation. Here, we are given the permission to forgive or to not forgive. Here's another tough saying. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Let's recall Jesus' first words, be transformed. Loving one's enemies is an aspect of being transformed. Given the state of the political and social environment today, this teaching seems almost absurd. Not so much, though, if we review the teaching as having to do with our own psychological development. Let's work with this teaching by recalling the notion of persona or mask, we all have a persona or mask we present to the world. The healthier our mask, the more it is congruent with our inner life. Now, whatever characteristics with which we identify, the opposite energy will fall into the unconscious. For example, if I see myself as just a really nice guy, the opposite energy of being a really not nice guy falls into the unconscious. Jung called this the shadow. These are personal contents that the ego finds unacceptable. So being raised as a nice Lutheran boy, I discarded any aggressive, mean, personal attributes. The shadow, therefore, is my inner enemy. And if I cling to the persona of only being a really nice guy, then I will react negatively when I meet an overly aggressive person. That's the enemy. So look at who you hate and you will find your inner enemy. Yikes! How uncomfortable is that? Jung counsels, though, that if we allow the shadow to become conscious, it is 90% gold. What does he mean? Well, always being a really nice guy in the world is quite a vulnerable position. 
So it was that in a clinical setting, my supervisor said in his southern drawl, Scott, if you don't toughen up, they're going to eat you alive in the parish. And so it was. But when I allowed the aggressiveness of the shadow to enter my consciousness and I worked with it in therapy, I discovered that unconscious aggressiveness transforms into assertive energy. And that energy allows me to assert and insert myself in the world and also defend myself when necessary. In addition, aggressive persons are no longer experienced as the enemy. Loving the enemy becomes a lifelong process of expanding one's consciousness and is part of the process of transformation. Again, the lesson is that if we begin in spirituality, we end up in psychology. And when we start in psychology, we end up in spirituality. Now here's a question for you. What subject is addressed more than any other in the parables of Jesus? Is it sex? No. Being nice? No. Attending church? No. Love? No. It is money. Hard to believe since the institutional church put so much emphasis on putting our cash in the offering plate. And the famous evangelists with their multi-million dollar homes and hangars full of airplanes lead poor saps on TV show after TV show to give them their money. And the prosperity gospel, what a sham. Plant a financial seed and God will reward you with more. Yeah, right. Let's see, the Jesus who said foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head is interested in your gaining a mansion. I don't think so. I doubt that Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos are our prime examples of the followers of Jesus. Jesus says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now what is mammon? It refers to the act of accumulation. How much money is enough? Some early church fathers considered mammon to be a demon. Later, it was seen as greed, one of the seven deadly sins. Walter Wink points out that Jesus' central idea of the kingdom of God is radically opposed to the world's kingdom, which is a system of domination. He writes, In his Beatitudes, his healings, and his table fellowship with outcasts and sinners, Jesus declares God's special concern for the oppressed. God sides with the poor, not because of their virtue, but because of their suffering. 
not because of their goodness, but because they have been sinned against. And he proclaims them blessed, not because poverty is holy, but because their poverty gives them a perspective to understand Jesus' condemnation of wealth. Those who speak of God as being invested in our being wealthy and successful are con men of the worst kind, opposed to the very central concerns of the teachings of Jesus. I'd like to look at one other teaching of Jesus that is sure to challenge our cultural values, and that is his teaching on family. The phrase family values entered our common discourse through the efforts of social conservatives and the Christian right, notably Jerry Falwell and his moral majority. It was a way to capture American voters who feared the social changes occurring throughout the country. Proponents of family values are opposed to abortion, same-sex marriage, sex education, feminism, homosexuality, environmental activism, divorce, and birth control. And family values became conflated with supposed biblical principles. On the other hand, when I was preaching, I would regularly offer anyone in the congregation $10,000 if they could find any passage in the four Gospels where Jesus had anything positive to say about the family. I never lost a penny. Instead, Jesus says, Do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Again, if we hold to Jesus' admonition to be transformed, we can see the problem with family. Families are impacted and controlled by intergenerational dynamics that are difficult to transform. So often I have witnessed only one family member from an entire clan who enters therapy to bring about change, only to be opposed by the resistant family. To experience dying to ego and connecting with larger inner forces that lead to change is a matter of taking up your own cross, your own individual life, and following its Christ-driven trajectory wherever it might lead. Individual transformation arises and moves away from collective family values. I have found it nearly impossible to plant this teaching in the local congregation where the typical mainline congregation is controlled by a few families 
who hold tightly to their power. So much for transformation on a community level. But the kingdom of God is falling upon us. It is in the midst of us. It is within us. So says Jesus. Be present to the presence of God surrounding us. Bidden or not bidden, God is present. So let's be present. Not in our past where depression awaits, not in our future where anxiety awaits, but here and now where God awaits. Karl Popper, the philosopher, originated the phrase conspiracy theory and remarked that this is what you get when you get rid of God and need something to take God's place. So given the state of our nation, we may be in deep trouble. But love is the source and the goal. Faith is the slow process of getting there. And hope is the willingness to move forward without resolution or closure. But I'll close for now and wish you transforming experiences in the coming year. And I look forward to being with you. Next up is a three-part series on our first three foundational challenges, both psychologically and spiritually. Trust versus mistrust, autonomy versus shame and self-doubt, initiative versus guilt. We'll have a lot to unpack in this series. So be well, thank you for listening, and if you will, share this podcast with your friends.